There it goes, deep into center field, way, way back goes Matty Alou, and that ball is in Astro orbit. And the little dynamo, the toy cannon, now has 76 runs batted into the year. What a shot. Hey there, everybody, and welcome to episode eight of Toy Cannon Cannon. I'm Vic Raghupathy. I'm Jacob Wessels. And today we've got another special guest. Uh, last week, Jacob had his stepbrother on, and we are keeping it in the family again today. I've got my brother on here, so why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, everybody. I'm Varun. I'm Vic's older brother. Uh, I went to Syracuse University. I graduated in 2016. Sports broadcasting is kind of my specialty, but I do other things related to writing and PR and marketing and different stuff like that, but always around both media and sports, so I'm very excited to hop on this podcast and get to talk a little bit about all that and then some more stuff as well. And Barnes hits one high. It's a deep. It is out of here. 7.56. I'm going to go with a canonization that I picked specifically because of our guest. Uh, Varun, your passion is play-by-play. I know that you've you've logged a lot of hours, you know, studying the finer points of it. Um, it's something I've certainly been interested uh, from time to time, and I know Jacob and I have have done did it together back in high school. Yep. Um, so uh, yeah, it's 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 a fine art, and I love it. It's it's something that makes sports so enjoyable. So first, I guess I'll start off by asking you guys. What are some of your favorite calls? It could be from baseball. Mine's going to be a baseball call. It could be from baseball. It could be from any sport. But, yeah, what are, what are some of your favorite calls from history? Well, I think it's amazing that uh, recently Kirk Gibson was on SVP. So you guys know where I'm going with that one. Yeah. What I find amazing about that one is Jack Buck and Vin Scully both had all-time calls. They both had iconic calls. I prefer the Jack Buck vintage. I don't believe what I just saw. But Scully, she is gone. Hits it perfectly. It's like, you know, it's classic, right? It's the 80s. It's the L.A. Dodgers. It's a classic franchise. Everything about it feels like a movie. Not only do you have the best of everything and the guy who's got one swing for a whole series, but you have these two icons of broadcasting who absolutely – nailed the moment so that is the first call i think of when i think of of great calls it, 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 it they're both great there's a great youtube video that kind of intercuts that moment with uh the final scene of the natural yeah and it, li- it lines up perfectly like if you, oh, like, sure. you put the randy newman score over that it, it's it's beautiful i think the the best sports movie call of all time is arguably the call of the final home run in the natural um that's just it's got like a great level of audio underneath that you believe it from the time period it gives the right level of gravitas i mean that's totally you know a different like a different ballpark but i feel like that is you know underrated sports movie calls go um i don't know personally one that i always come back to and this is really random because it's certainly not a legendary moment like the kirk gibson home run or you know like something like that but there's a um there's a walk-off home run that andrew mccutcheon hit in in about 2015 i want to say and i was talking to Vic about this game the other day but the call they give on the pirates radio broadcast of that is like kind of summarizes to me what makes baseball so awesome because it was just such a roller coaster game and and kind of the exasperation and joy from the broadcasters you you really you feel the moments in a, in a kind of a different way and you're like holy shit i just watched something amazing and as someone who was 
um, watching the game on TV at the time. And I was like, holy shit, I watched Ring Amazing. When I heard that call the next day, because I was obviously watching the TV broadcast, it was a Fox game. So I got to hear Joe Buck's version of it. I was like, wow, that really summarizes exactly how I'm feeling. And I wasn't even a Pirates fan. So that, that's really special for me, I guess. I, there are certainly a few I could go with. I mean, obviously there's like uh, Shot on Elo. Um, you know, uh, there's... You want to talk about underrated play-by-play play, guy? Jim Durham is the Brian Jordan of uh, play-by-play guy. Sorry. I, know I know he's your favorite or one of your favorites. Yeah. Jim Durham made the, the Elo call and many other Jordan calls, um, but great choice. And then speaking of another Jordan call, I think, I think Neil Funk did the best one from the 1998 game six shot, right? Jordan to drive, hangs, fire, scores. Yeah. That is Neil Funk. Yes. Yeah. So Costas is, you know, Costas is obviously a legend, but like in all the rebroadcasting of that with like the game six of the movie and the last dance, I feel like they're showing a little bit too much of that NBC broadcast and not enough of, of the local Chicago ones. I agree. But either I could go with those, but the one I'm going to do right now is probably my favorite because I find it just hauntingly beautiful. I find it poetic. And I don't know whether that was uh, the intention. I know certainly you can speak from experience. I know it's impossible as much as you want to say you don't do that. I know it's impossible to sort of think about. It's, it's impossible to avoid thinking about what you're going to say when, you're, when you know a big moment is going to happen. Has that ever happened with you? I, uh, I strictly am against writing it down. Never be against the day of. When you get to the ballpark and someone's sitting on, you know, four, two, whatever it was, that like you're thinking about it, okay? Well, you're thinking about what you're going to say for Pete Rose's call. But if you write it down, that's weak. It's yeah. got to be about what's in the moment. But you can always, 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 you know. It's impossible not to. It's, it's, it's human. It's human to think. What else are you thinking about? What else are you going to be thinking about? Yeah. And, it, and if, honestly, if you don't think about it, that's probably just under preparation. It's, it, amen. Amen. But don't write it down. Do not write it down. Of course. Yeah. Um, cause it does have to flow out of you. So I, um, so we're going to talk about Dwayne Kuyper's call from Bonds hitting number 756, because for a couple reasons, I don't think that this is, you know, uh, is one of the iconic moments. They kind of talk about this in Ken Burns baseball, where it's like, it's, it wasn't the kind of moment that like you wake your kid up for, you know, there was a lot of, eh, okay, this is happening. It's not like I care about it the way I did when when Aaron hit 715 or nine years earlier when McGuire and Sosa were doing their thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this is sort of like, like obviously a big moment because of what is happening, but also kind of not that big of a moment because it wasn't, it, it wasn't a cultural touchstone the way some other milestone moments, the way Pete Rose's moment or, or others like it were. Um, and, but I, I still think the call deserves, deserves to be up there. We'll start off talking about Dwayne Kuyper. Um, he knows a little bit about being alone. In his first start for the Indians, he was replacing a guy named Jack Rowammer, who uh, was a lineup and locker room fixture. And in fact, the shortstop, he was playing second base. So the shortstop, John Ellis, told, Kuyper, told Kuyper that first day, he was like, Hey, Jack Boheimer is a friend of mine. If until you can prove to me that you can play, I'm not going to even talk to you. Gaylord Perry was the starter that day. He was going for 20 wins, and he said, "You make any errors, you'll never play behind me when I'm pitching again." And so his major league career, Dwayne Kuyper, wasn't really getting out to a really fun start, and it probably made second base uh, a pretty lonely spot early on. 
eventually he got the starting job. He got the respect of his teammates. Uh, one time he went through the pretty lonely experience of an injury rehab when it was absolutely brutal because in the span of a week, he was knocked unconscious and had to be stretchered out of a game. And then just a week later, he like landed on his leg weird when turning a double play and he tore up cartilage and stuff uh, in his leg and he had to rehab that for a whole year. And he also has one of the most famous and loneliest statistics ever. We'll get to that later, though. But Kuiper always did have someone by his side. His father was by his side during his contract negotiations, especially the early ones. Longtime manager Frank Robinson was a great partner of his. Uh, he always had good relationships with his teammates. And, I mean, he's had the same broadcast partner for, like, 20 years now in, uh, in Krakow. So he's had brushes with, with loneliness, Barry Bonds, on the other hand, he had loneliness hardwired into his DNA. Recently, Bonds opened up to The Athletic about his standing in baseball history. He said that he feels like a ghost rattling around in a big empty house. Personally, I can't think of a better analogy to capture the feeling of being ostracized by a community you fought your whole life to preside over. That's loneliness on a Shakespearean scale. It didn't start with Barry, though. Obviously, Barry's father, Bobby, very famous baseball player in his own right, he had to endure the hardships of playing grueling minor league baseball in Lexington, North Carolina, the Jim Crow South. Baseball is already a pretty lonely sport, whether you're isolated in the outfield or standing by yourself at the plate. When you pile on the flood of racial slurs Bobby had to face every game, can't even comprehend how alone he was out there. He was a unique athlete also. He was unlike anyone else in baseball. Um, he had in two Olympian siblings, and he faced massive expectations from his childhood onwards. That's one reason he spent much of his time before games or track meets drinking by himself under the bleachers. Even by the time he was 13, he was doing that. His drinking eventually got so bad that it estranged him from his family. Later in his career, while he had productive seasons, he played for seven different teams in seven years at one point. And Although he was a phenomenal player, he continued to butt heads with those around him. And uh, Bobby's good friend and teammate, Willie Mays, also knew a thing or two about loneliness. I mean, it's an age-old story there. Mays was a massive celebrity. And a lot of times you'll hear about huge, huge celebrities that feel extremely lonely because, well, I mean, everyone knows of them, but like, who, who really knows them? And everyone wants to uh, sort of pry their way in on his life, and it gets in the way of you being a, a private person, you know, he took a dim view of, of a nagging and prying press while public attention sort of got in the way of him having a private life. And he also had the, the imposition of, of, of athletes of his time, like Bill Russell and Jim Brown, who had to deal with the fact that they were idolized as black athletes, but still lived in a world that very much treated them and fellow African-Americans as second-class citizens. And that's sort of the, the real difficulty when it comes to, to hero worship in, in sports, especially for a black athlete. And it's, 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 a really, it's a really tough predicament to be in. And so Barry, always a precocious child in a few different ways, whether it was baseball or whether it was picking up on the MLB atmosphere that he was exposed to from a young age, uh, he took these things from his father and his godfather, Willie Mays, his idol, Willie Mays. And they sort of served as his baseball blueprint, right? Never trust anyone, and you can only count on yourself in this game. 
Barry hardly ever got along with teammates. Too many accused him of thinking he was superior to them and acting like he was superior to them. He was, and he probably thought it and acted like he was as well. Too often he rankled members of the media that would end up crafting the narrative of his career. They regularly heaped praise on teammates like Andy Van Slyke or Jeff Kent, who were frankly nowhere near the player Bonds was, but were white. And so that's the way it went. Kent especially could get away with the kind of asshole behavior that Bonds could never even dream of. He is an asshole this way. So Bonds was a superstar, but he was constantly poked and prodded at. He was a poster child for Pittsburgh's postseason shortcomings, right? Lack of winning hurt his narrative throughout the 90s. He played for middling Giants teams. He was getting paid a lot of money for Giants teams that effectively went nowhere. And nobody Uh, knocks Griffey for no rings. I was just about to say, Griffey, you know, only made the playoffs a few times, but people didn't blame him for not making the playoffs the way people blamed Bonds for not making the playoffs. Understandably, obviously, Bonds had, you know, bad stints in the postseason in the NLCS with with Pittsburgh. He batted under 200 through those series, and Griffey probably – silenced any any sort of criticism like that with an insane 1995 postseason with like an OPS around like 1100 so uh, that's part of it but the other part of it is that he was consistently measured against Griffey and while he was by a narrow margin of probably a better player but you know pretty much neck and neck pretty much they were the same player Griffey had love and admiration and, and cultural impact that Bonds just never did. Griffey had Bonds. a video game deal. Yeah, yeah, man. Bonds Bonds wasn't like a dude the way Griffey was. I mean, Griffey was the kid. Griffey was his own brand. Bonds was, was difficult in ways that Griffey privately, you know, kind of was I mean not in the same ways but Griffey the, the Griffey story is a lot more complex than a lot of people think it is but still um it it doesn't have nearly the kind of baggage that that Bonds does I mean we see this when Bonds established the 400 homer 400 stolen base club but hardly anyone took notice because it was 1998 everyone's attention was squarely on the juiced up sluggers in the NL central that were battling to beat Roger Maris. You know what made that perfect too? Bonds did that in Florida against the Marlins. Can you think of a more, the 98 Marlins, all the good players are sold. 97 is long. It's the most irrelevant place in major league baseball. And that's where Bonds does 400, 400. Yeah, absolutely. And because of that, it was sort of cordoned off to the, the back sex, the back papers of the sports section. Uh, as opposed to being a a grand accomplishment. Already, no one had ever been 300 homers, 400 stolen bases, except for Barry and Bobby. And now Bonds does this this thing that no one has ever come close to. Part of that is because it's not as clean as he hit 70 home runs in a season, right? That That is a really clear, that is something you can say and everyone can understand. But, you know, if I say 400, 400 club, Baseball people get that. Other people, not so much. That's not, that's not like a big thing. Like the single like, home run record is a cultural thing. Yeah, they'd be like 400 what? Yeah, exactly. 400 anything, 400 what? 
Mm-hmm. Like, you know what home runs are. And even when they're when taken together, obviously we know power speed is a big thing, but home runs, stolen bases kind of seems like two disparate things that you're like pushing together. Um, so it's 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 just not as clean as you know hitting 62, hitting 70 home runs. So that's when Bonds was faced with the the life altering choice that everybody in his era was faced with. And he made a decision based on years and years of double standards and hero worship and resentment. He chose to do steroids, but he was not alone. Even so, he was treated as though he was because he was the best. Few in baseball have received the barrage of booing that Bonds did. Even fewer had the capability of single-handedly silencing them with one swing in the bat. In the batter's box, one of the loneliest places in sports, Everyone was against him at times. Yet time and time again, he made them bend the knee. He was giving them, by juicing up and pimping all these home runs, he was giving them what he thought they wanted. He saw the love of Griffey. He saw the love of McGuire and Sosa. And he was giving the people what he thought they wanted. What he didn't realize was that his entire career, he was kind of giving the people what they wanted a figure to single out, whether it was based on team shortcomings, selfishness, race, the harsh realities of the steroid era. He was a person that you could single out and a person that you could sort of pin a lot of frustrations on. Let's go back to Dwayne Kuyper and the loneliest statistic of all. A lot of people know this, just like practically everyone knows most of what I just told you. That's not under the radar by any means, but that's fine. It's all necessary to set to set up this call, right? Dwayne Kuyper knows the impact of a single home run. And that's because on August 30th, 1977, he hit a singular home run. Not only was his only shot of the day or the week or the season, it was the only one of his entire career, a good 10-year career. He made dazzling plays throughout that career and had all-time greats like Frank Robinson swooning over him. One lonely home run. It's one of the great stats in all of baseball. Now let's fast forward nearly 30 years to the day. August 7th, 2007, what was then AT&T Park. Bottom five, tied at four, Mike Baxick on the mound. Barry Bonds stands at 755 career home runs, tied with Henry Aaron for most all time. Aaron is not present. Much controversy surrounds this milestone because of a steroid speculation so he's decided to leave Bonds alone and offer instead a virtual passing of the torch. Aaron's friend, MLB Commissioner Bud Selig, is also not present. In classic Bonds faction, he works a 3-2 count, even fouls one off, and everyone in the stands, including the man in the booth with one career home run, is waiting for one thing to happen. And on that seventh pitch, Here's Kuiper's call. Bonds hits one high, hits it deep. It is out of here. 756. Bonds stands alone. He's on top of the all-time home run list. They say that it's lonely at the top. There was no lonelier climb and there is no lonelier perch than that of Barry Bonds. To this day, He calls himself a ghost, and Bond stands alone.
that's my favorite call of all time. I don't know how much he thought of it or the weight of it or how poetic it was, but Bonds stands alone. There are so many ways you could phrase that, right? Bonds is the all-time home run hitter. Bonds is atop the list, but Bonds stands alone is perfect. It is the spiritual successor to the quote that Bonds' teammate had when he was in Pittsburgh. One day, this kid will put up numbers that no one can believe. And then two decades later, that's exactly what he did. Nobody can believe it. Nobody right. wants to believe it. It's reality. Yeah, people don't believe it. It's, it's, it's the kind of beautiful double meeting that I don't know if Kuiper realized in the moment, but I'm sure he does now. It's, it's, but, it's so perfect. And he puts it into three words that perfectly encapsulate Bonds' entire backstory and how he's been ever since his career ended. Has anybody else ever played 10 years and hit one home run? Has anybody had the number of plate appearances that Dwayne Kuyper had in, in MLB and had one home run? Uh, we'll find out. Yeah, uh, we can find out right now. I'm not sure about that. Um, speaking of Dwayne Kuyper stats, though, we were talking about Herb Washington and his uh, low stolen base percentage compared to his talents for running. Can you guess Dwayne Kuyper's stolen base percentage? 46. Really close. Like, really close. It's like 42. 42, okay. Yeah. He's at Wallace free throw numbers. Yeah. Like, it's – and he stole 52 bases over his career. Like, that's not an insignificant number at all. No, no, no. You want to know something crazy about Barry and and the fact that he hit so many home runs, 762 at the end? If you look at the highlights, you can see that bat is tiny. Hmm. That bat is really, really small. Not just for Barry Bonds, but for anybody. Jacob is smiling. Maybe Jacob has found something out. I found something. You can continue with your point, though. No, that was my point. He used a really small bat, and he hit more home runs than anybody other than Josh Gibson. Well, and Alfonso Soriano used a really big bat. Right, right. All right. Dwayne Kuyper does not stand alone. He, uh, there is only one player with more plate appearances and one or less home runs than Dwayne Kuyper. So basically, you know, in a you know divide. If, if for anyone who has a single career home run, Dwayne Kuyper has the second most plate appearances. Gotcha. There are only two people who have this many plate appearances. The other guy is named Davy Force. Um, he played in 1871 to 1886, and he was 5'4", and his name was Wee Davy, also known as Thumb, and he had an outstanding haircut. Like, it's like curls up on his head. It almost looks braided. Um, I, like, just looking at him, it's just it's all, it's all there, the full package, the 5-4, the, the one home run. He was for a 17.1 career war for whatever war you're trying to use from, 19, from 1871 to 1886. But, but Dwayne Kuyper connected across an entire century. Uh, Kuyper from 1974 to 1985, Davey, we Dave Force, from 1871 to 1886. They basically have the same length of career across an entirely different generation. And their numbers 
also almost mirror each other, with the exception that Davy Force had about 500 more plate appearances, so he has a few more RBIs and a few more. Basically, we live in a simulation. <laughs> yeah, it's basically the same guy who's recreated. Davy Force's OPS was even worse, though, although both of them are rocking the... Uh, actually, not true. Davy Force not rocking that because he doesn't walk. But Dwayne Kuyper is rocking the slugging percentage less than his OBP, which is really, wow, that's a rare club. Yeah. I mean, not many 271 hitters have a 615 career OPS. That's astounding. Wow. Yeah. And like fourth is um is 5'4". Dwayne Kuyper is six flat and like 175 pounds. Like, I didn't even know Dwayne Kuyper was a baseball player. Dwayne Kuyper is still then the only player in the modern history of the game, if it starts in 1900, to play 10 years. Well, maybe not, but, but to have that many plate appearances and have one home run. Yeah, only one other player in the modern era has one home run in more than 3,000 plate appearances. His name is Emil Verbon. Wow. 3,000 plate – wow. And how many did, uh, did uh, Kuyper have? Kuyper had 3,754. Okay, so he's got like a season and a half. Oh, man. Wow. Yeah, and this guy, Emil Verban, has 3,110 uh, play appearances. He also has one career home run. Emil Verban, a two-time All-Star with the early 40s Phillies. Yeah. Who would know? Wow. <laughs> Emil Verban in the early 40s. Huh. Okay. Because there were, I was, I'm watching baseball, uh, you know, Ken Burns, and, and, and there was talk of, like, in the 30s and 40s, the uh, Reds had a couple of players of Cuban descent who were lighter skinned. So it, it was just like, uh, you know, obviously it's all bullshit from that shit. But, like, to, to, for somebody with the name Emile Verbon, I wonder the heritage. I wonder the skin tone, and, you know. Well, that's what I was thinking about. I was like, what the heck is this heritage? And so I look, he's a three-time All-Star for his career. Oh, you know, but he's not a three-time All-Star. He's another one of those guys who made two All-Star games. Uh, in one year? <laughs> yeah, okay. In the same year. Because he's only got two years of All-Star production. But I guess I guess in 40, it must be 47, uh, when he was a Philly, he made two All-Star. That's not, he's actually only a one-time All-Star for the Phillies. Um, he made two All-Star games for the Phillies because he made them both in the same year. Um, but he's from... He's from Illinois. He's from Quincy, Illinois. So I'm not clear that that, that doesn't scream like, you know. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Might be from, I mean, I, there's lots of reasons someone would be nicknamed Dutch, but his nickname is Dutch, which leads me to believe that maybe he is of like Dutch or Curacaoian descent. I don't know. Hmm. Oh, yeah. So, Vic, this, this call, like, how long has this been your favorite call? Oh, this is, this is, sorry, sorry. I, I hate to interrupt, but I got one more thing. I'm looking at Emil Verbon's page, and not that I, this is unexpected, but um, they do the similarity scores on baseball reference, and his similarity score, number one match, is Dwayne Kuyper is a 952, and no one else is even close. Wow. It's like Dwayne Kuyper, Emil Verbon, everybody else. That makes sense. That's yeah. Sense. Um, Varun, you asked how long this has been my favorite call. So we've we've got a, a DVD box set of of Ken Burns baseball, um, and and it's up on Prime. So I've I've watched through that so many times. It's fantastic, and never gets old. Yeah, never. ever. And and the one thing, and like there are a couple quibbles I have with the tenth inning, but the one thing I love is I love the Barry Bonds story. It's 
it's like Homer could pen an epic poem about about the whole Barry Bond story. And I'm I think that's kind of what Ken Burns like sought to do with the tenth inning because they spend so much time on Barry Bonds, rightfully so. Um and I it just was watching that, was watching the the bottom of the tenth and they talk about the night that he hit 756 and mostly about the anti-climax of that night, you know, people being like, you know, commissioner wasn't there. Hank Aaron wasn't there. I didn't wake my kids up to see it. You know, there's a a bit of highlight uh, from the 10th inning and it's, it's obviously citizens bank park, right? It's obviously Philly. And there's just this banner that says Ruth did it on hot dogs and beer. Aaron did it with class and it's right above the flower beds in left field. And it's like, yeah, that's a good way of, you know, cause I, I saw bonds hit five ninety seven. I've never seen somebody hit a home run quicker. Like he swung, like, you know, my dad and I, Vic, our dad, like we went to the vet. This is, I think 2001. Uh, so maybe, maybe a little bit later, but we all go to see bonds. He's the show. <laughs> and, you know, we're sitting up there first base side, upper deck, and Bonds twirls his bat a couple times. I don't even know what the count was, but I remember hearing him make contact, and then I kind of looked to the right, and the ball was knocking up against the bullpen wall over the fence, like 340, 50 feet away, and it was like a second and a half. I've never seen somebody hit a ball so fast and so hard and so far so quickly. But it's like, yeah, that's the show. You came to see the show, and it was just like that. And it's so and, – and I love when people call it, especially him himself, you know, calls it the show because that's another thing that's so insane about Bonds is that consistently when everyone is expecting him to, to hit a home run and, you know, he's only getting – one or two worthy pitches per game he rarely fails and he always seems to just capitalize on the one little opening he will get and he will make you pay for it and he has to work a three two count because no one's going to give him anything honest before that you know like they're going to wait until they absolutely have to throw one near the plate and and he hits it and even sometimes like they just won't they'll quit they'll just take first base yeah with the bases loaded very bonds You know, there's been a lot of discussion, you know, now the last dance is over and, you know, I've already talked about the fact that I haven't watched it, but there's been a lot of discussion about like who you'd like to see that kind of a documentary about next. Iger. That answer is far and away Barry Bonds. He has the most interesting arc, the, one of the most untold stories that like, you know, there's, there's there's gotta be so much that went on behind the curtains there, you know, steroids, records, you know, whatever. I feel like that would be, you know, you know, the most interesting thing. And I, I think without a doubt, we're going to name that documentary Bond Stands Alone because that is just such a great and poetic name. It's a poetic call. It's got everything. Yeah, Tiger, I said Tiger, and I still believe that. We're going to get a 10 parter on Tiger. He's as important an American athlete as has existed. But we kind of know all that. We know about the infidelity, the car crash, the sex addiction. We know about all that stuff. When Tiger spoke about his infidelity and all that, the world stopped to listen. But when Bond's hit 756 the world didn't stop like there is a lot to your point Jacob that we don't know or that we don't understand frankly and so yeah when you look at and obviously Bonds isn't anywhere on the level of bad person as OJ but 
the great, great American athletes, the most compelling captain, Ruth and Mantle and OJ and Tiger and Michael and LeBron and Bond. Like, these are the people that get those 10 parters. And I would love to see a deep dive on the life of Barry Bonds. I'd like to see one on Griffey too, but like you said, Vic, it's just a little bit different. And I'd like to see Bonds as first. A lot of times I feel like when we talk about players, you know, we sort of take the narrative that we want and we run with it, obviously, because, you know, obviously a lot of things happen, but it's, it's never really all one way. You know, it's always like everything happened, but we take a little chunk of it and that sort of fits our narrative. And so we run with that. And because of that, partially, I think there are a lot of really poetic and, and epic things you can assign to the Barry Bonds story. But I honestly feel as though those things are, are true. You know, everything that you take with the Bond story. I, I really think that, the, that, that Bond stands alone doesn't just fit a narrative, but I think it, I think it rings true. Yeah, and so to answer your question, it, it it became my favorite call when I sort of caught that upon a viewing of the bottom of the tenth, and uh, I I was like, wow, that I sort of had to pa- I had to pause it and be like, wow. Yeah, I remember like you know, so I my first favorite athlete even before Alan Iverson was Sammy Sosa. This is like '99, right around when Sammy Sosa is one of the most popular people on the planet, and basically it's it mirrors the 10th inning but a lot of baseball viewing in the 2000s was done in a supreme court hearing room you know it was as much about mark mcguire and rafael palmero sitting in front of those thin mics as it was about them up at the plate and that really put a damper on the whole thing and i do think that remembering 2006 2007 like People were shrugging their shoulders, like like proudly shrugging their shoulders. Like we don't we don't we don't want to deal with this anymore. And so mm-hmm. I think that baseball, I think that there's a, you can have a lot of debates about the health of the sport, but there's no doubt that between the '94 strike and the steroid era, there's a lot of people that just like I'm done with the sport. And only some of them have come back. You know, the sport is still fairly healthy, relatively speaking, but that isn't to say that it didn't lose a lot of people along the way the last 25, 30 years. Yeah, this was Jake and I were sort of talking last night about like the the era that the Phillies were good and the fact that they were such a good team, but like all of their guys are pretty much borderline Hall of Famers. And when you talk about that era, there aren't a whole lot of like all time greats that really stand out. Like even if you talk about Miguel Cabrera, like that's right smack dab in his peak. But you think about young Miggy in the World Series in 03, or you think about Triple Crown Miggy a couple years later in 2012. Right. And uh, we were also talking about like the fact that Jose Bautista was such a revelation when he hit 50 home runs, like yeah. the rebirth of the 50 home run season, this time presumably clean. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, now people are hitting home runs more than ever. Yeah. And ostensibly they're doing it clean. Yeah. The players aren't juicing. The baseballs are juicing. Exactly. They're doing the players are clean. I'm not so sure about the baseballs. No, the baseballs are not. But that that, that's baseball going like, listen, home runs bring people to the ballpark. Home runs put eyeballs on the screen. If we don't want these people cheating, we'll just you know. But if they're gonna do that, can't do that, and then like not do it in October. Like I I feel like it's it's so weird because they change it for the playoffs every time, and 
home balls that are home runs during the regular season, I guess, to get views are they go back to real baseball in October. It's weird. I mean, baseball is always talking about shortening the game, speeding things up, fewer visits, yada, yada. They're not doing shit for the World Series. A World Series is going to be played the way it was played in 1905, the way it was played in 1925, 55. They're going to just take their time with it. They're not, so they're not going to impose the rules on the most important part of the game. Then right. it's hard to find credibility for some of it. It's hard to, like, mix it in, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I really had a lot of fun in this episode. We talked a lot about a lot of different things. Um, Varun, thank you so much for, for coming on. You were, thank uh, you for having uh, me. This was a blast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>